Now, what I want us to do is, first of all, be aware that in this passage, we see that we have a message. I want you to listen to this part right here, beginning with verse 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood there in their midst and said to them, peace be with you. You know, the Lord's presence just brings peace. Just being in his presence gives us a sense of being loved and everything being okay that we can find in no other place, in no other way. So he said, peace be with you. And then when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. And then he says, as the father has sent me, I also send you. Now I want to come back to that in a moment and to this other part. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the spirit. He breathed on them. Now I have seen depictions of this where he goes up to each one of them individually and just exhales in their face. But the thing is, it doesn't say that that's what he did. And he didn't go to each one of them, breathe in their face and say, receive the Holy Spirit. It says that he breathed on them. He just said, peace be with you. And he breathed on them. And I imagine that at that moment, they could sense the presence of the Holy Spirit in the room. You know, spirit, the word for spirit is pneuma, and it means breath. And the Holy Spirit is referred to as the breath of God. And many times, whenever you are in the presence of the Holy Spirit, it's like you can feel the Holy Spirit move. You know, there's a song, this is the air I breathe. And uh, then there's another song we sing here from time. There's a sweet, sweet spirit in this place. I can feel the brush of angels' wings. Sometimes you can just sense the air move from the presence of the Holy Spirit. Or is it the Holy Spirit himself that we are sensing when we feel that movement of like air? But anyway, they sensed it there. The Holy Spirit was in that place, and he says, receive the Holy Spirit. When you're in his presence, he breathed the Holy Spirit out upon them. How do we receive it? We take it in. And so whenever you're in the presence of the Holy Spirit, just breathe him in. Just receive him, take him into your heart, into your life. So he says, receive the Holy Spirit. And then he says something that is debated a lot. 
If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now I want to just kind of sort this out today. Jesus presence brings peace. And now then he says, as the father sent me, so I send you. So what did Jesus send and what was he sent into the world to do? To set people free from their sins and to bring them into the kingdom through the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit working in him and through him. And that's our mission. That's the mission of the church. He has sent us. He sends us just as he was sent by the Father. It says, uh, and it goes on and it says, and he said that this is in Luke, the second, the 24th chapter, the 46th, the 49th verses. It kind of underscores our mission. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. We have a message and a big part of that message is that sins can be forgiven, that our sins are forgiven when we receive what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. Now, this is so important, and the church needs to hear this today. He wasn't giving them the legal authority to retain sins or to forgive sins. He was giving them the responsibility of sharing the good news that sins could be forgiven through the blood of Jesus and salvation could be had through believing, repenting, and receiving this good news. Now that message and the responsibility is ours. We have a responsibility to let people know their sins are forgiven. And if we shirk that responsibility, or if even worse, God forbid, we tell someone their sin is okay, we are retaining their sins and we're leaving them lost. If we have the opportunity to tell someone about Jesus, we need to do so, so their sins can be forgiven. If, like I said, if we have that opportunity, we don't share, we have left them in their sin. We have a dire responsibility to share the message of Jesus Christ. And next week, I'm going to talk a lot more about that. Today, however, what I want to focus on is the leading cause of our not sharing the good news because it's the leading factor in the church's impotency in the world today. We could simply call it a Thomas-like attitude, and it's not simply doubt. It's doubt laced with pride. Think about this. All of them saw Jesus die on the cross. They witnessed him buried in the grave. 
They'd been in hiding because they were scared to death of experiencing the same sort of fate that Jesus had experienced. Until Jesus appeared to them, they all believed it was all over. But then it wasn't over at all, was it? Jesus was alive. Can you imagine the change that happened in that room? They were depressed when Thomas left, but all of them were celebrating when he came back. And with all the celebrations, Thomas still wouldn't believe. He had to see it himself. Now, I want you to understand something at this point. Thomas knew Jesus. Thomas walked with Jesus for three years. Thomas witnessed his death, but not his resurrection. Thomas knew that Jesus had lived, but not that he was alive. There are Christians today who know that Jesus lived, and they know that he rose from the dead. But for some reason, practically to them, he's not really alive anymore. He doesn't have ownership within them. Now, I want to give you an example. I've made this statement pretty consistently that not all roads lead to heaven. If you haven't understood that, I hope you'll understand it before you leave today. I have said that not all religions lead to heaven, and they do not. In fact, I've said for the record, and I believe that the Bible says, I believe what the Bible says, that he is the only way to heaven. This is what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If it's not through Jesus, you don't get in. I've said this, and I've meant it when I said it, and I mean it when I say it, and you'll hear me say it again. Jesus died for the sins of the world, and he is the only one who did it. The only one. For several years... I've heard reports from time to time of Jesus appearing to Muslims in dreams and then becoming his followers in the Middle East. I came across a book this past week that is filled with some of these stories that I had heard through the years in the past, just all brought together in a most exciting way. The book is entitled Dreams and Visions by Thomas Doyle. You can get it on Kindle anyway. I would encourage you to read it. It is exciting. It reads like some sort of an action novel because you've got people who are facing death for the love of Jesus. The book contains true stories of Jesus appearing to Muslims in dreams and visions and leading to their conversion. Now, It would be one thing if this was happening in the United States, but it's happening in the Middle East, in the heart of Islam. And I don't want you to miss the significance of these conversions. These are people who had direct interaction with Jesus and were changed. They were changed to their core. 
Their change, if it were known to others, also carries an immediate death sentence. Muslims who convert to Christianity do so at the risk of death. Many can't tell their own families because their families would turn them in. They're meeting secretly to pray and to study the Bible. One story tells of 10 imams, religious leaders, who were visited by Jesus in dreams individually with them not knowing anything about any of this stuff going on. They came to know him as Savior and Lord, and he led them to each other. They're now secretly studying the Bible together and seeking to know Jesus even more. Can you imagine meeting Jesus in a dream and deciding that he is worth your very life? I have some Iranian friends in the Katy area that that's where they are. They came to know Jesus in Iran, and they say that the love and the peace that came to them when they received him as Lord and Savior was something they could not turn away from, but then they couldn't stay in their country for the safety of their child. And so now they're living in this area, basically, because of Jesus and because he means more to them than life itself. Now, if Islam leads to heaven, why would Jesus need to start appearing to specific individuals of the Islamic faith, converting them to Christianity and putting them on the front lines to bring others to him, even at the risk of certain death if they are caught? What we take for granted here in the United States, they hold extremely precious. Being a Christian and being able to learn about Jesus with other believers, they're willing to die for that. Many people in Islamic-controlled Middle Eastern countries hear sermons from this church every Sunday. Are you aware of that? In the past 30 days, I checked last night, we've had our messages heard 1,671 times in places like the Islamic Republic of Iran, in Egypt, in Pakistan, Iraq, and Turkey. And I pray that we're helping our clandestine brothers and sisters in Christ to grow in their faith walk with Jesus as they hear our messages every week. Jesus is alive, and those who are truly seeking him are finding him. Now let's get back to Thomas. In verse 25, so the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands and the imprint of the nails, and I put my finger in the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I won't believe. <coughs> Thomas was adamant that he wouldn't believe unless he could see himself. Was this pride speaking? Was it doubt? It was both. 
Pride keeps us from admitting when we're wrong and causes us to dig in and hold fast to a belief that might not be true and will hold fast no matter how much data we receive that might disprove it. Thomas wouldn't believe unless he could see Jesus for himself. And notice this, and only if Jesus met his criteria. He set the criteria by which he would believe. Now then, he's saying Jesus would have to prove to him that he was Jesus. Jesus is going to have to meet his criteria. So let's say that Jesus appeared to Thomas. He showed him his hands and he showed him that he could see the nail prints in the hands. And then Thomas says, okay, let me see your side. And Jesus pulls over his robe and there's no slit where the spear pierced his skin. Thomas, according to his criteria, would say, I knew it. You're not Jesus. You're an imposter. Now, listen to me. This scenario in it, Jesus didn't prove who he was. That's not what happened. But you see, that's the criteria that he set. He set criteria. He set his own construct as what it would take for him to believe. Today in the church, many have decided that they already know what they expect Jesus to do, how he will act, what he'll look like. And if they don't see that, he's not their Jesus. This is important. So listen carefully. If in your mind, what Jesus should be, what he should do, and how he should respond to us, if that's not found in the Bible, if it doesn't line up with the Bible, then you're never going to really see the real Jesus. You're not going to see the Jesus you want to see because that Jesus doesn't exist. And we're never going to be able to live the life that Jesus has called us to live because we're not believing him or in him. If that's the case, we're never going to experience the blessings that Jesus wants us to receive because Jesus doesn't measure up to what we're looking for. Isn't this what the Pharisees did? In their minds, they had their own ideas of what Jesus was supposed to do. And when he didn't do things the way that they thought he was supposed to, they said, you're not the Messiah. They said, we have our checklist right here. It's in front of us and we can't check anything on our list off. Therefore, you're not the Messiah. Let me ask you this. Do you have a Jesus checklist so many Christians don't realize that they have a checklist of what they expect Jesus to be like uh, that doesn't line up with the Bible at all. And if they, and you know what they do? They teach others their checklist in instead of showing them who Jesus really is. For example, take same-sex marriage. You talk to people who are in favor of it and they'll say, Jesus loves everybody. He loves us. He wants us 
uh, to love who we want to love as long as we're in a committed relationship. No, uh-uh. That's the Jesus that they have developed. That's the Jesus that they have carved out. It's an idol. It's not the one true Lord. That's their Jesus. Their Jesus, not the Jesus. Their Jesus, not the Jesus that we see revealed through the Bible. And I'm telling you right now, brothers and sisters, their Jesus is not going to get them into an eternity. Not going to get them there with the real Jesus. Their Jesus instead is going to keep them on a slow downward path to the lake of fire where they'll spend eternity. And it'll keep them from ever sharing the good news with others that Jesus loved them and died for their sins. Please understand, Jesus has not changed regardless of how much we want him to meet the standards of the world today as it relates to compassion and acceptance. Jesus has not compromised and he is still demanding repentance. Please don't take my word for it. Go read your Bibles and see for yourself and look and examine the lives of those who received Jesus in this way and the difference in their lives. And then look at those who are saying, oh, Jesus, he loves you just the way you are. You don't have to change. You don't have to worry about sin. See, when you do that, that's when you retain the sin of others. This is where the forgiving of sins and retaining sins comes into play. It's our responsibility. And this is the heart of the problem in today's church and that it, what, it, what it must overcome. Many are serving opinions about who Jesus should be and ought to be instead of serving the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. There's a bishop at another conference uh, this past week that said, God has commanded us to love everybody, and that's all we need to know. Now, notice how this wolf in sheep's clothing has twisted Scripture at this point. God hasn't said we're to love everybody. That's not our, that's not, and she was saying, this is the great commandment. We're supposed to love everybody. No, the great commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's the first commandment. If we love him, Jesus says, we'll obey him. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Okay, that's the first commandment. And then he goes on and he says, the second commandment is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now then, if you're loving God and obeying him and paying attention to what he says, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to want them to go to hell. You're not going to want them to retain their sins and miss eternity. 
Instead, you're going to want to tell them about a Jesus that died on the cross so they could be free from their sins, not slaves to their sin. And this is what the fight in the Methodist church is over today. Do people stay slaves to sin or do people get set free from sin? And John 20, 26 through 29 tells us that after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Once more, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, reach here your finger. I imagine he was smiling as he did it. Reach here your finger. Put it in here. Put your hand here in my side. Thomas didn't have to touch him. He just fell down and said, my Lord and my God. His criteria were just totally cast aside. Jesus came, made it clear that he knew who he was and Jesus, he knew who Jesus. The thing is, when you're in the presence of Jesus, you know who he is. Now, I'm going to close with this. All of us have some Thomas-like attitudes because we're still growing in our faith walk. So let's truly be like Thomas. Like Thomas, let's not remain in doubt. Doubt is okay as long as you struggle with it and face it honestly and seek the truth. But when you close your mind to the truth and you close your mind to what God really wants from you, you're going to remain in doubt. Thomas came full circle. He didn't get mad and leave the group because of his doubt. He hung around and tried to understand. He loved Jesus. He wanted to serve Jesus. And Jesus honored that. He had doubt, but he also had a yearning. Now, God made a big promise a long, long time ago. He kept it here and he keeps on keeping it. He's keeping it in the Middle East where people are seriously, really seeking a connection with God. Jesus is coming to them himself when other people can't get to them. Around the world, this promise is still being kept. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I want to encourage you that if you haven't come to know his peace, his presence, the infilling of his Holy Spirit, and have a joy that you want to share with others, a freedom from sin that you want to share with others, I encourage you, keep seeking. He's promised, if you seek me with all your heart, you will ever surely find me. Not somebody else's opinion, but me. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.